Alert Medic 1 respond. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. Hello and welcome to the Alert Medic One podcast. My name is Mustafa Sadiq. And I'm Ken Sanner. We're going to be continuing our discussion of airway management with a conversation with Dr. David Pittsburgh. We're going to be talking about uh, common pitfalls with airway management. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we can talk about with this topic, anything from BLS airways all the way up through endotracheal innovation and some of the other skills we have. So without further ado, we want to jump right into it, throw it over to Dr. Vipperg and ask you, what are some of the major pitfalls you see, especially in the EMS-specific arena? So we talked about this a little bit in, in our prior conversations, and, and I just read, I found a good quote online, and it says, the clinical goal is airway management, not just placing an ET tube. So we're talking, a big, again, about a comprehensive head-to-toe process. It's not just simply putting an ET tube. So my first pitfall, I've said before, and I'll say it again, basic airway management must always precede advanced airway management. Good basic airway management including uh, an assessment, insertion of basic airway adjuncts, good two-person BVM ventilation when the hands allow it, consideration of a supraglottic airway always has to precede any endeavor into video or direct laryngoscopy. Basic airway management must precede advanced airway management. That's my first pearl. So I think from, uh, I think from an operational, from a training standpoint, I don't think that people forget, but I think in terms of the excitement, we forget the basics, right? Like, uh, I mean, what do you think, Ben? Yeah, absolutely. You know, BLS before ALS, it's, it's vital to maintain an airway through BLS maneuvers first, and then when you get into advanced airway management, it is super easy to go to the cool, flashy, fun toys while forgetting, you know, the basic, normal, direct laryngoscopy that we use for direct intubation, it's, it's very easy to get sidetracked and say, hey, I've got this fancy video laryngoscope, I want to go in here and play a video game, when really that's not a perfect tool, you know, it's, there are flaws with that type of system as well. Indeed, and, and again, I mentioned this before, you know, stock your equipment that you're going to use for the same procedure, put your basic airway adjuncts proximal to your advanced airway adjuncts so that, that you're, you remember to put them in. Moving on to the second thing is the failure to adequately position the patient for the procedure you're about to perform. So I don't know what your guys' experience is with field intubation, but routinely I see everybody laid flat, even if they're on a stretcher in the back of a medic unit. And there's a a lot of kind of emerging literature that shows that that is not the ideal way to intubate folks. Positioning and taking a little bit of extra time to optimally position your patient or move them to an environment where you're going to be more successful if you're going to do advanced airway management would be my second pearl. Yeah, I think that's absolutely critical, the positioning of not only the patient, but the provider. Something that someone told me a few years back that completely changed my practice as a, as a paramedic when it went, came to intubations is you need to be on the patient's level. And that can include, as you've mentioned before, elevating the patient's head to a 30-degree type angle. Or, you know, it may just mean getting on the patient's level. You know, for some reason you're not able to do that. Maybe you're in a house and you don't have enough blankets or whatever the case is. Get on the floor with the patient. Get your head right into their head. 
so you can actually see what's going on. Don't sit in the captain's chair and try to intubate somebody who's laying flat beneath you. It just does not work well. That's a, a major issue. So this absolutely blew my mind, right? So I, when you talk about positioning, I automatically think about what changed my practice, right? So I had a, you know, so shock trauma does the educational classes. And when you walk into a cadaver lab, the head is always on a head block, right? And we take, we don't even think about it, especially as a paramedic, you don't even think about it, right? And everybody's just intubating whatever. And, um, in the field, we don't do that, right? And like, they're getting the tube in every time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that head is on yeah. that block, and the cadaver is in an ear to sternal notch. Yes, you know, exactly. Yeah, exactly yeah. What I was and, just say. and they, uh, so one of the instructors just took the head block out, and he's like, right, "Trying to be now." And it was a really, you know, it's bigger guy, and it, you know, the, it's crazy how your your look just changes, your view, excuse me, just changes. I have a, you know, this translating to a call I had where a paramedic was like, you know, the patient's really anterior. I can't see anything. It's a bigger guy. And the first thing I did, and it's probably not the best thing to use, but I took the med box, mm -hmm. right? And I just slid it over the patient's head and I got the tube. Uh, another situation where we had another arrest in a house and I put a, a, one of the, the patient had a book next to them. And I put the book underneath and that ear to start on notch helped my, like, you tremendously. Yeah, it, it's all about working smarter, not harder. We should be doing everything we can to make this as easy on us as possible because that's going to provide the most benefit to the patient. There's no sense in trying to be a hero and making things more difficult. So I want to expand on that a little bit. So one of the things that kind of makes me cringe and, and crack up at the same time is seeing that new paramedic that takes a learned scope in the left hand and just flicks the blade open yeah. and the light comes on like they're drawing a gun out of a holster or the paramedic kind of laying on the, you know, the simulation where the paramedic's laying on their stomach underneath like a concrete slab trying to intubate somebody. So, you know, if the situation calls for it, you know, at the end of the day, we're first responders. We're out there to save people's lives. You got to do what you got to do. But like Ken said, if you can work smarter and do things that will make you more successful in whatever skill you're trying to do the first time, you should be doing those things. And so I think that a lot of training programs actually don't spend enough time talking about patient positioning. And I want to just expand upon that just a little bit more. And it was mentioned a few seconds ago, the concept of not intubating a patient with their head flat. So the first thing that Moose said was, I went to the cadaver lab, the cadaver's head was up on blocks. So, and I said ear to sternal notch. So you've got to take a look at a picture. Just Google ear to sternal notch position for intubation. What that will do is it'll kind of align all the axes that you need to introduce a laryngoscope to see the glottis and get that tube in the first time. Okay, so ear to sternal notch. And when you create an ear to sternal notch position, most of the time you're actually going to be ramping a patient's head up and you're actually going to be elevating their torso up a little bit and simply elevating somebody's head up about 20, 30 degrees also does something great for the procedure pre-oxygenation, which has to precede the intubation attempt. The functional residual capacity of the lungs is increased when you move a patient from a supine to an upright position. So the functional residual capacity, which is if you take a normal breath in and out, okay, at the end of your exhalation, you have what's called your expiratory reserve volume. And then below that, you have something called your residual volume. So if you breathe normally and then you take a forceful breath out and expel all of your tidal volume as forcefully as possible, you blow through that expiratory reserve volume 
and then all you have is your residual volume. The combination of that expiratory reserve, which you can forcefully blow out, and the residual volume, which you can't blow out, the combination of those two is your functional residual capacity. Now, why am I mentioning this? When you are 90 degrees upright, your FRC, your functional residual capacity, is maximized. When you're flat, it's minimized, if not obliterated. If you lift the head up bed up about 20, 30 degrees, you increase a patient's functional residual capacity, and you create more area in the lung, more open alveoli to fill with oxygen during the pre-oxygenation maneuvers that have to precede intubation. So head of bed elevation, when permissible, i.e. you're not doing this for patients with C-spine or spinal restrictions, you're not doing this for patients who are getting chest compressions and CPR, you're doing this for your medical patients where, you know, optimally they're on the stretcher, you're in the back of the medic unit, you've got some good lighting, you got some oxygen ports around you. you got your side table where you can lay out your airway equipment. Does it happen like this all the time? No. I, I'm not naive to the fact that we do this on the floor of people's bathrooms. But when possible, operate smarter. Get your patient to a spot, maybe even a vacuum or medic unit, where you can do this smarter. You can elevate the head of bed. You can create that ear to sternal notch confirmation to align the axes to improve your intubation success rate. And improve functional residual capacity, and improve your pre-oxygenation before you intubate. So pearls and pitfalls, we already talked about basic airway management before advanced airway management. We talked about patient positioning, and we've kind of already kind of treaded into the importance of pre-oxygenation. And my other pitfall, which is the failure to give good, adequate pre-oxygenation to patients. I think that's so key for, you know, coming uh, you know, from a jurisdiction where I used to, you know, work in an RSI jurisdiction. Yeah, I can't remember who said this to me. I don't know if it was a, a shock trauma class or whatever, but there should they, they said there should be nothing rapid about rapid sequence intubation, right? The pre-oxygenation phase, the you know, introducing the medications phase. And I think we're going to talk about it a little bit about no DSAT intubation and stuff like that, but that takes time, right? Right. So, I mean, we might as well go there. You, you said, so RSI. So intubation is sexy. We had talked earlier offline about a paramedic said, if they keep taking away my indications for intubation, I'm going to work somewhere else. Well, okay, go ahead. Yeah. You know, the sexiness of RSI will always be there, but every medical community, pre-hospital, hospital, is starting to really embrace concepts of pumping the brakes, slowing this process down. The term DSI, the late sequence intubation, has emerged where really if you look at DSI at its core is exquisite preparation of the patient, often using a checklist to make sure that you're doing all the things you need to do to optimize your airway management success, facilitating and optimizing pre-oxygenation, and doing all those things before you actually even consider passing an endotracheal tube through the cords. So while RSI is sexy and people love saying it on the radio and doing it on the field and you know, doing it with people hanging upside down from yeah. vehicles crashing on the interstate. The progressive way to look at airway management, just like we talked about in one of our first podcasts with you know slow visualization of structures, pumping the brakes, is this theme of let's pump the brakes, let's do maybe delayed sequence intubation. Not that we're going to take 30 minutes to do it, but we're taking a few extra minutes to get our patient to the place where we're going to optimally intubate them, get them positioned properly get our airway adjuncts, basic airway adjuncts, and ensure basic airway measures are in place, good BVM ventilation, and then optimize pre-oxygenation. And if we're talking about it on the paramedic level, 
Sometimes we use drugs to actually do drug-facilitated pre-oxygenation for agitated patients or patients that are having difficulty tolerating non-invasive ventilation or DVM ventilation. So that's my next pearl slash pitfall is not pumping the brakes and focusing enough on excellent pre-oxygenation for our patients that actually do require intubation. Yeah, and it can be hard for some people because that adrenaline gets going, but the reality is when we take a measured approach to anything in EMS, we're going to have a better result. Even with advancing the tube itself, you know, you have 30 seconds from the time you stop bagging the patient to the time you start bagging again to get that tube in. 30 seconds is a really long time. If you've ever actually counted 30 seconds out, and looked at how long it actually takes to drop a tube on the easy airway. It does not take anywhere near 30 seconds. So utilize your time, stay calm, you know, take a deep breath. And actually one topic we want to talk about in the future is staying calm under pressure. So I'm not going to get into all of that here. Just remember that you are a professional and you know what you're doing. So take your time and do it right. So my next thing on my, my list here is specifically with the advent of video laryngoscopy. I think a, a lot of systems have moved to uh, incorporation of video laryngoscopy into their toolbox for airway management. Some systems actually kind of mandate that video laryngoscopy be used first because of, frankly, the declining rates at which paramedics are intubating. So one of my pearl slash pitfalls is that video laryngoscopy will never replace the importance of knowing how to do good slash excellent direct laryngoscopy. So you have to remember to wherever you train, wherever you practice your skills, to, to maintain your DL skills, even if you use VL for the majority of your intubation attempts, because there's going to be a fair amount of patients, particularly in the pre-hospital realm, that have soiled airways with video laryngoscope devices that don't have windshield wipers or good anti-fogging mechanisms, where you're going to have to resort to either not intubating and doing anything, just doing BBM ventilation, but Introducing a good old-fashioned laryngoscope, suctioning out that soiled airway, and using your DL skills. So one of my pearls and pitfalls is do not forget about the good old-fashioned laryngoscope and how it really has to remain at the basis of our training in advanced airway management. Yeah, and I think that's so important because if you think about it, even if where you are working or volunteering has VL as a standard of practice, you still need a backup to that, and essentially DL will be your rescue, your first line rescue device. If you can't get the King Vision to work, break out the laryngoscope and go at it. Yeah, I, th I think you know it's important to note that the sequence of you know kind of what your primary intubation device is and what your rescue plan slash device will be varies jurisdiction by jurisdiction, state by state. So while one jurisdiction may sell and say you know your first attempt is going to be VL, your backup will be DL. Another or you might say your first attempt will be VL, your backup will be BVM ventilation with a basic airway adjunct, or your backup will be SGA, supraglottic airway insertion. So I just want to caution the audience that there actually is no universal algorithm, and it is very much jurisdiction and agency specific. But recognize that video laryngoscopy has been a game changer, particularly in the EMS environment. There is a much higher first pass success rate with video laryngoscopy than with direct laryngoscopy. But that's built on the premise that I can get the video laryngoscope in their mouth and they don't have a completely soiled airway that completely obstructs the camera view from seeing the lattice. Since we're talking a little bit about VL, video laryngoscopy, you know, one of the things that I mentioned in a prior conversation we had was 
over-zooming. So we're using a lot more VL devices. It really actually doesn't matter which device we're talking about. If we're talking about a GlideScope, if we're talking about a King Vision, if we're talking about a McGrath, Bright, whatever. One of the common pitfalls that I've seen in the field is over-zooming, which is basically, again, moving away from that slow, progressive visualization of every structures, basically jamming the video camera in and getting in so deep that you kind of lose the forest for the trees. You don't know where you are. You're in, you're in an abyss. And so just like there should be slow progressive visualization of the right myrgoscopy, so too should there be with video myrgoscopy. Wide mouth opening, slide that thing in slowly. I find that when I bail people out and they're not having success, we use King Vision primarily where, where I respond. When I bail people out and I help them get the tube out of the King Vision through the cords, what I'm doing is I'm simply coming up next to them and I'm withdrawing the King Vision blade a little bit and basically withdrawing the camera and zooming out so that you can actually appreciate all of the anatomy below the camera. I think the, uh, the other key thing that I didn't know as a paramedic starting out is there's no, so when we see a curved blade, we think that we need to see it in the molecular and displace anatomy, and that does not have to happen generally from the, the video learners that I've used. The anatomical displacement doesn't have to happen, correct? Absolutely. So there really be well, most, if not all video, video devices, there should be little to no effort as far as lifting. You know, if, if you do that 90 degree rotation for most devices and slide along the tongue, this actually gets back to the importance of having uh, uh, lubrication. So let me just backpedal a little bit. A lot of people were intubating, dehydrated, sick, poor oral intake, uh, demise, debilitated. They'll often have very dry, desiccated, bone dry, mucosa, tongue, one trick that you should kind of maybe incorporate into your airway armamentarium is take a little bit of lube and put it on the non-camera side of the blade so that as you snake it along the tongue, it slides more easily because it should be effortless. You should be able to slide along the tongue into a position where you can view the glottis. There shouldn't really be any need for lifting or manipulation of the glottis. Now, is there sometimes a need to do a little lift or a rotation of your hand left or right? Absolutely. Oftentimes with a lot of these video devices, you may have to rotate your wrist a little bit towards the left so that when you push the tube through a channel or down a stylet, you're not hitting the retinoid cartilage, particularly the right retinoid cartilage at the back of the airway. But there shouldn't really be much effort with any of the video devices. They should slide pretty seamlessly into the base of the tongue near the molecular, near the epiglottis to give you a view of the course. Do you prefer using channeled or non-channeled when you use it? So if we're talking specifically about you know video devices that have a channel, I personally, when I train, I highly advocate for the use of a channel device, and I'll tell you why. Number one is it's as you push the tube out of the channel, it should, if you have the cords in view and centered, the tube should come out and go through the cords. Now, there's little nuances on how to make that happen better. Slight rotation yeah. of your hands towards the left to avoid the retinoid cartilage, which I keep coming back to, yeah, yeah. the importance of knowing basic anatomy. But a channel tube, a channel blade will generally help you get that tube through the cords more easily, particularly when you're a novice intubator. The danger of using a malleable stylet, like a regular stylet that we use for good old-fashioned direct laryngoscopy, with the video devices. Remember, video devices, there, there are two types of blades that exist now for video devices. There's the hypercute, super curved blades that you kind of rotate along the, the tongue, and you are basically doing indirect laryngoscopy. You're not directly connecting the line between your pupil, your eye, and the cords. You are relying on the camera at the end of the blade to see the cords. And when you do that and you have that hypercute blade and you're using a camera to visualize the cords, if you use a curved, malleable stylet, it's tricky to deliver that to the glottis versus the channel will help you get it there quicker. Now, the downside of the channel 
is channels can usually only accept seven, seven and a half internal diameter ET tubes. So if you're looking to put in a bigger ET tube, that could be problematic. There are now video devices like the, the uh, Glyscope Go is an example. There's actually many devices, video devices now we can actually put on a good old fashioned Mac blade or Miller blade, hook it up to the video monitor and do the combination oh, of sweeping the tongue, direct visualization of the cords and the video visualization. So this goes back to something else that we harped on is that you got to know your equipment, you got to know your anatomy, you got to know how your equipment interacts with the airway anatomy. But long story short is for channel devices, I do find that a lubricated ET tube sliding through a channel device tends to, in my experience, supervising paramedics doing field intubations, be more successful than the non-channel blades. I would, I would say that in my personal experience too, like because I, I consider myself a novice innovator. I, I think most paramedics are novice innovators because we just don't do it that much, you know, unless you have years of experience doing just that. But yeah, every time I've done video laryngoscopy, I've, I've used uh, a channel blade, and absolutely, like the doc said, it's really convenient having the tube right where you you know it's going to be every single time. And uh, like you said, the minor nuance movements of not only rotation of your wrist with the camera, but also the uh, tube. I really end up helping out. Switch frame thing to my next curl pitfall. So a lot of systems use glide scopes. A lot of systems do video laryngoscopy now where they're using rigid stylets. A rigid stylet can never, ever pass the vocal cords. It cannot go below the glottis. I witnessed in my career when we started using video laryngoscopy, a patient intubated in the field by a relatively experienced provider using a rigid stylet and in the rush to get the procedure done, push the rigid stylet through the vocal cords. And because it's not valuable, it can't be bent, the tip of the stylet perforated the anterior portion of the trachea. Oh, wow. And then immediately when they started bagging the patient, massive subcutaneous emphysema. Needless yeah. to say, the patient had a very, very poor outcome. Yeah. So pearl pitfall, my next one is if you're using a rigid stylet, recognized full well, you can never pass a rigid stylet for intubation past the vocal cords. You deliver the tip of the ET tube to the cords and then advance that ET tube off the rigid stylet, which can lubricate, and advance the ET tube off of the stylet through the cords. I think that's the whole point of not advancing the stylet to pass the eye of Murphy, right? right. Like, I mean, because of trauma, potential exactly. trauma. Yeah. Cool. Last thing, I'm going to go back to basics with my last curl pitfall, is it astounds me still to this day the failure of providers to immediately monitor continuous waveform capnography after intubation. There should be very little to no delay between putting the endotracheal tube in and monitoring continuous waveform capnography. There are lots of GEMS articles and videos out there that show that really slick paramedic that has the adapter attached to the ET tube as they do their direct laryngoscopy and they say, oh, you know, when that internal CO2 washes up the ET tube, I'm going to see that blip on my LP15 and know I'm at the glottis and push it in. You know, you can be slick, you can pre-attach your Entitled CO2 adapter at the top of your ET tube. You can have a pre-connected UVM. I don't care how you do it. You have to monitor continuous waveform capnography as soon as possible after intubation. Many reasons. Number one, direct visualization, but then entitled CO2 detection is the gold standard to know that you're in the trachea. Number two, there's a wealth of information that you can get from continuous waveform capnography with regard to you know making sure your ET tube remains in the right position. But also remember. You know, entitled CO2 is a direct correlation to your cardiac output. Is your heart beating? Do you have a blood pressure? How do you generate entitled CO2? Your heart has to be beating. You have to be returning CO2 to your lungs and then exhaling that. So 
you know, a lot of people have hemodynamic changes around the time of intubation, and the information that you can get from that early continuous waveform capnography is not only important with regard to knowing where that tube is, but assessing your patient's hemodynamics. Yeah, there's um, so much you can tell from NTIO-CO2. Like, if you guys haven't listened to it, please listen to our podcast on NTIO-CO2 and, and SPO2, where we go, we dive deeper into the physiology of cell respiration. So just one last quick question to end this on. When is it appropriate, if ever, for a paramedic to extubate somebody in the field? So, so I'm going to turn it around. Did you, in your training program, or as EMS educators, ever get taught about excavation or you know have a slide put up or a lecture on this topic? So very good question. It's mentioned for about a half a paragraph in a paramedic textbook, but it's not something that is ever drilled in skills. It's not something that there's any in-depth training on, anything like that, no. All right, so let's talk about reality because that's the world I live in. Most of the time when we put an IO in, we ain't taking it out in the field. When we put a endotracheal tube in, we ain't taking it out. Now, this is a great question because what we hope to do as EMS providers is actually improve our patient's conditions. And imagine that. We actually have a patient in respiratory distress with altered mental status, hypoxic. We intubate them, and then they're awake. Well, our protocol, most of our protocols where we work have kind of band-aids to put on that situation, and it's called Versed, fentanyl, and ketamine, and, you know, whatever. But on the flip side, you know, when I work in the hospital, the ED or the ICU, the quicker... I can get somebody excavated in a safe fashion, usually the better they're going to do, the, the lower the incidence of them getting an ammonia while they're on the ventilator, having complications of the sedation, me having to escalate care and do other things for them. So I think this is a question that deserves uh, conversation, and I don't think it's touched upon enough in our, our paramedic education. When should you extubate a patient? Rarely, okay? Yeah. I think that if you're, you're in a system where you've intubated somebody and, and they start to come around and you have the ability to give them some analgesia, something to help them, an anxiolytic, uh, Versed, fentanyl, you know, do so, get them to the hospital and have them excavated under kind of controlled conditions where, where they can be kind of weaned according to the kind of weaning protocols we use in the hospital. Just to give you a little insight into the way we wean and excavate people in the hospital is, number one, we try to lighten or stop their sedation. We want to make sure they're fully alert. We want to make sure that the condition that led to their intubation has been reversed. So if you intubated somebody for angioedema, you don't extubate them in the field because their angioedema probably isn't resolved. If you intubated somebody in the field because you intubated them before you gave them Narcan, and now they're waking up and reaching up with superhuman strength trying to pull the tube out. So there's a real-world situation that I could see the potential need to extubate somebody. So, you know, we, we try to teach in our jurisdiction, you know, start with basic airway management, Give your Narcan. If you're giving Narcan, you should probably have a VVM out and, and be supporting their ventilation, which is another major pearl pitfall. We're definitely going to be talking about that. We yeah. need to yeah. talk about that in yeah, a separate yeah. podcast. But I, you all could see that mistake being made where you have an overzealous oh, ALS provider show up, rushed intubation, and then the parents go, hey, my son uses heroin, you give him Narcan, and now he's awake with a 7.5 ET tube, 23 centimeters of teeth secured with a Hollister device, wanting nothing to do with that, and you're going to keep them unnecessarily intubated and maybe now give them medications which are part poison, like Versed and fentanyl, which could drop his blood pressure and, and prolong his need. So I think there are certain scenarios where you may have to actually excavate somebody. But here's a quick checklist. Have you reversed the reason they got intubated? If so, you can consider excavation. Does the patient have an adequate spontaneous respiratory effort? So we measure this scientifically in the ICU by looking at what's called their rapid shallow breathing index, where we look at their tidal volume and their respiratory rate. 
what are their secretions like? Do they have a lot of endotracheal secretions? If you're suctioning stuff out of the ET tube, leave the ET tube in. There's a process that hasn't been completely corrected. Is the sedation off? But those are some of the big ticket questions to ask. And if you can say condition's been reversed, they don't have a ton of endotracheal tube secretions, they're hemodynamically stable, I'm not going to extubate them with a very real potential that I'm going to have to remanage their airway and put that tube back in. And then as the last thing, what I would say is most medical EMS systems in the United States have this thing called medical control, where you can pick up the phone, you can pick up a cell phone, a radio in the back of your medic unit or on your hip and talk to a physician or a base station. You know, I think if you're considering extubation, like with everything else we've talked about, pump the brakes for a sec, somebody else kind of manage the patient, get on the radio, talk to your base station physician, quickly lay out the case, and, and get support for making that decision. And don't forget to deflate the cuff. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think it's something that we're really not equipped to do or trained to do really well. The one thing they do teach is that, you know, if you are going to do it, you need to make sure that you're able to get that tube again 100% if, you know, if things go south. But I think this is a great place to end the show today. Yeah, absolutely. It went a little long, so... We really appreciate your time, Dr. Wittberg. Thank you, everyone who's listening. Don't forget to check us out online on our website, alertmedic1.com. Find us on Facebook, like our page. Check us out on Twitter, at alert underscore medic1. Subscribe, download, and like our podcast. Listen to us anywhere great podcasts are found. Thank you for your time. Yeah, so uh, we're on Spotify, we're on SoundCloud, and we are on iTunes. Please give us a five-star rating, give us a critique. Don't be, you know, don't hesitate to reach out. Let us know how you think we're doing. Any topics that you want us to cover, please let us know. As we keep mentioning, we're a community-driven podcast, right? We're a community-driven mission, and we can only grow with your support. Thank you very much for listening in. Uh, bye for now. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.